Let freedom ring with a buckshot, but not just yet. First, we need to truly understand the nature of the threat. And a pale man walks in the threshold of darkness. Hello, and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. My name is Shireen Hamza, and today I'll be talking to Anna Cruz about Al-Andalus in 20th century poetry and hip-hop. Anna Cruz is faculty of Arabic and Spanish language and literature at Choate Rosemary Hall. Welcome to the podcast, Anna. Thank you. So you completed your PhD in UC Berkeley's Near Eastern Studies Department, and you wrote a dissertation titled Modes of Loss, Al-Andalus and the Arabic Poetic Imagination. To get us started, where and when is Al-Andalus? So at the most basic level, Al-Andalus is the region in the Iberian Peninsula, which was governed by Muslims starting from 711 until uh, the capitulation of Granada in uh, 1492. Okay, so the Iberian Peninsula, I guess that's modern-day Spain and Portugal? Yes, exactly. And your work really focuses on the way that poets have written about Al-Andalus, not only in the medieval period, but also in the modern world, you know, five centuries or four to five centuries after it stopped existing. Yes, exactly. Um, and the focus of my dissertation was in particular the um, concept of loss. So what do we mean by loss? What are the types of loss that poets in the medieval period e experienced? For instance, the loss of their homelands, whether it, were, it was Spanish cities, uh, Cordoba, Valencia, and Granada, whether it was the loss of their identities, um, and ultimately the loss of the entire um, Arab Andalusi um, area altogether, as you mentioned, um, and then how modern poets in the 19th and 20th centuries have utilized these same uh, poetic images and tropes to discuss loss in their own context, whether it's socio-political um, in Syria, Palestine, Iraq, or to talk about the loss of beloveds the way that medieval poets would talk about the loss of their own beloveds. Ah, okay. So Al-Andalus has become a metaphor in some way for an irretrievable lost love exactly. or homeland. Yeah, that's, uh, that's how I interpreted um, the use of Al-Andalus in these particular excerpts of poetry that I looked at in my dissertation. And it's also become very common in the 20th century for Al-Andalus to equal like a paradise lost. And this is a trope that's very common in the poetry of Palestinian poets, for instance. And so Al-Andalus becomes equated with loss, which becomes equated with the loss of Palestine. Can you give us a, maybe a sense of some of the work of these poets? Maybe if you could talk about a few of them, read some of their work for us? Of course. So one of the most uh, prominent poets is the Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish. So he wrote a collection of poetry titled Ahada Aushada Kaukaban, which translates roughly to 11 planets. And this was published in 1992, which corresponds with the 500th anniversary of the loss of Granada. Mm. And throughout this whole uh, collection, we have this idea of Al-Andalus and Palestine becoming synonymous. And so each poem sort of details a specific uh, moment in that history, but also can be read in, um, as allusions to what was going on in Palestine at the time as well. Another poet that I've studied extensively and done a number of translations of his work is the Iraqi poet Abdel Wahab al-Bayati. 
So he's particularly interesting because he was very well acquainted with Spain. He worked there as a cultural attache appointed by Saddam Hussein. Oh. Um, at one point, he was also exiled from Iraq and lived in Spain during that time. And so he was very well versed in the history of um, Muslim rule in Spain and wrote a number of poems in particular about the loss of Granada. Mm -hmm. And so he has a collection of poetry that was published around 1995 called Kitab al-Marathi, which is the book of elegies. And there's a particular poem that has sort of framed my work, not just in my dissertation, but also work that I've been embarking on post-dissertation um, about the notion of an archive and what, what constitutes an archive and how can poets function as uh, historians as well. And so there's one poem called Edduhul il Garnata, Entering uh, Granada. And so the poem begins with Lam adkhul Garnata, lakinni kuntu biha shabhan. أتجاول في قصر الحمراء أصغي لنحيب الماء وأنين جذور الأشجار أتسلق أبراج السور المحدومة أحصي القتلى في كل مساء في حي البيازين وسوق العطارين وبيع الأقفاص زمني كان رمادا Roughly translated just for time purposes, it starts, I did not enter Granada, but I was a ghost there. Roaming the Alhambra, listening to the wails of water, the moaning tree roots, climbing destroyed tower walls, counting the killed every evening in the Albaicin district, and the perfumer's shop and the sale of cages. The time was ashes where the subjects of my kingdom are ghosts, exiled in the phrase, there is no victor but God. My weapons buried in Aisha's eyes. My soldiers were killed atop the walls. So in this poem, Al-Bayati starts with setting the scene for what is going to, what occurs right before the capitulation of Granada was signed um, to take place on January 2nd, 1492, in which uh, the Muslim king signs an agreement with the Christian monarchs Ferdinand and Isabella to uh, hand over the keys, so to speak, to Granada. Um, and in doing so, that would then be the loss of the last Muslim stronghold in the Iberian Peninsula. And so here we see Al-Bayati's familiarity with the region. So he talks about the city, he talks about the Alhambra, which is the most famous monument in southern Spain to this day. Um, he talks about the Albaicin district, which was the Moorish quarters. And he talks about also being exiled in the phrase la ghalib illallah, which if you go to the Alhambra, you'll see this engraved all along the walls. It was embroidered on brocades because this was the anthem of the Nasr dynasty. So this shows not only Al-Bayati's dexterity with the language, but also his familiarity with the history as well. 
And so from there, we get sort of this journey that his poetic persona, who's the king, um, takes as he's, you know, leaving Granada, but noticing all of his citizens have become ghosts, noticing that he'll never be able to return to Granada again, um, and also realizing that what he's done has now foreshadowed an event which I've I've taken to be the catalyst for thinking about how we think of archives and what we mean when we're talking about history. So the poem ends with Columbus which means in which time or place are we now? Columbus laughs maniacally on the Atlantic Ocean and I'm approaching in a shroud. And so I found this particular verse really interesting because there's so much history in these few lines. So the monies that the Christian monarchs received from, from taking over Granada, part of it was used to fund Columbus's expeditions. Mm-hmm. And in Granada, in one of the city plazas, there's even um, a monument that marks this event of Columbus receiving the parchments stating that he's to go and embark on journeys to, you know, the New World or to India, so he thought, before encountering the Americas. And so I just was very interested in wondering what were the connections between the end of Muslim rule in Spain, but then also the beginning of the European imperialism and colonialism in the Americas, and sort of what connections can we see between Arab culture, Arabic literature, Arabic culture, and if any, between um, artists in the United States, in Latin America even, and sort of looking at these ways that we can look for nodes of solidarity between cultures. So this concept of the the poet uh, building an archive can allow us to maybe explore how the many historical events of 1492 are appropriated in a sense their memory rather than a celebration is um the you know the celebrated beginning of columbus's pursuit um, and european colonialism is remembered as the eve of disaster right and so this is a, a resonance that you see between 20th century poets um mostly in the arab world and you said between artists in the united states and even in latin america We're going to take a music break in which we'll ask listeners to pay close attention to the lyrics. We'll be listening to Nature of the Threat, a song by Ras Cass, a Los Angeles-based hip-hop artist. This song is from his 1996 album, Soul on Ice. Threaten European Christians, meaning the white way of life. Hence the crusade for Christ. On November 25th, 1491, Santiago defeats the last Muslim stronghold, Granada. King Ferdinand gave thanks to God for victory, and the Pope of Rome declared this day to forever be a day of thanksgiving for all European Christians. Now listen, when you celebrate Thanksgiving, what you are actually celebrating is the proclamation of the Pope of Rome, who later in league with Queen Isabella sent Cardinal Seminoles to Spain to murder any blacks that resist Christianity. These Moors, these black men and women, were from Baghdad, Turkey, 
And today you eat the turkey for your Thanksgiving day as the European powers destroyed the turkeys who were the forefathers. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Shireen Hamza talking to Anna Cruz about Al Andalus as imagined by poets and rappers in the 20th century. So, Anna, we just listened to Nature of the Thread by Ras Cass. Can you give us some context for this song? Yeah, so um, prior to the 80s and 90s, when there are a lot of hip-hop artists who were influenced by um, Islam, uh, Malcolm X, uh, there was a lot of movements taking place in the United States in the 60s in particular, in which you had um, the influences of Malcolm X and his assassination in 1965, and you have um, the civil rights movement, the black power movement, the black arts movement, influencing the creative and artistic productions of African Americans throughout the country, and many of whom utilize the history of Islamic Spain and El Andalus in their creative endeavors. For instance, there's a play by Amiri Baraka called A Black Mass, uh, which is based upon the Nation of Islam's myth of Yaqub. And there's a number of black poets in the 60s and 70s who use Mecca as a signifier with which they define and redefine and reimagine their relationships to white society. Mm -hmm. And in mm -hmm. these instances, Mecca is also this trope that's used to discuss deliverance from oppression. Part of that comes from Malcolm X. In many of his speeches, there was one in particular called The Ballot or the Bullet, where he brings up the trope of a turbaned African man or the Moor, in which he states, quote, Right now in this country, if you and I, 22 million African Americans, that's what we are, Africans who are in America, you're nothing but Africans, nothing but Africans. In fact, you'd get further calling yourself African instead of Negro. Africans don't catch hell, you're the only one catching hell. They don't have to pass civil rights bills for Africans, an African can go anywhere he wants right now. All you've got to do is tie your head up. That's right, go anywhere you want, just start being a Negro. And what would happen if a Negro came in to a cafe and to any white restaurant? There he is, sitting black as night, but because he had his head wrapped up, the waitress would look back at him and say, why, there wouldn't no Negro dare come in here. So this notion that Malcolm X discusses with the privilege of respect and respectability that an African-American would get if one were to wrap their head in a turban, sort of harking back to this notion of the Moorish American, mm -hmm. um, which started with the founding of the Moorish Science Temple, in which its founder, Noble Drew Ali, encouraged his followers to start wearing turbans and to also start dressing, quote unquote, more respectable in suits and ties. And the idea was, that as Moorish Americans, they would be garnered more respect in society mm -hmm. because they weren't any longer African Americans, but rather they were Moorish. And so this would distinguish them from the typical African American that was experiencing a lot of discrimination in the North and in the South. 
I, uh, I was watching Beyonce's Lemonade, and I noticed that in a very striking scene in, um, in the song Formation, where there are people standing behind her uh, wearing fezes. And that's when I, you know, I looked into it. That's the first time I had uh, come across this longer history of the concept of the Moors. The, is that a reference to the same Moorish yeah, sign sample? I would think so, because there's images from uh, not only the followers of the Moorish Science Temple, but also um, prominent um, clergy people. And they also, part of their attire was either the turban or the fez. Mm. And so, yeah, I think that that would also be the sign of like increased respectability that one would hope to get um, by dressing this way. So this was founded in um, the early 1920s. Ah. And so the members would attach uh, the word bay or el to their surnames and wear either turbans or fezes and tunics as well. And everyone was also issued a passport and stated both their American citizenship and their Moorish heritage. And so the downside of this, though, was that it reinforced marginalization of sub-Saharan African cultures and led to um, very marked class stratifications in post-antebellum South, for instance. And so it still has its problems, but at the same time, it did allow this idea of deliverance from oppression uh, to many of its followers. Mm -hmm. So this is um, maybe 30 or 40 years before Al-Bayati? Definitely, yeah. And this is also a few decades before... Um, the founding of the Nation of Islam, which took place, and its most influential member was Malcolm X. And um, Malcolm X's influence continues to exist in many artistic endeavors. Um, also, there were, was in the 1970s um, a gang in Chicago Southside, and they were called the Black Peacestone Nation, mm -hmm. and their leader became associated with Islam and Moorish Americans while he was in prison, mm. and also carried these alternative passports that connected them to a mythical past that would provide this alternative mode of citizenship for them because their mode of life in in urban Chicago or in other urban areas was one of oppression, was one of degradation based solely on their race. So these passports provided them with an alternative lineage to sort of look back to. Mm -hmm. In a sense, um, from what you said about Al-Bayati, he himself though spending time in, in Spain, was an Iraqi poet. Mm -hmm. So in connecting himself with the, you know, the history of Muslim Spain, do you think that is sort of a parallel imagining of his own um, lineage? Um, I think perhaps, especially because Spain, the history of Islamic Spain is so foundational in a lot of poets' work in the 20th century. Uh, Darwish was interviewed and in the 1990s, he stated that every poet has an Al-Andalus inside of them hmm. because Al-Andalus was this search for um, a past, but also sort of trying to deal with the present and also looking to the future. And so how could you 
how else could a poet express these desires that are in like contradicting directions, looking to the past, but also looking to the future. And one way to do that was through this history of Al-Andalus. And so I think that in some ways for many mm -hmm. of these mm -hmm. poets who wrote in Arabic, um, this plays a very, very found formative role in a lot of their poetry when dealing with the notion of loss, when dealing with the notion of loss of homeland, of political sovereignty, and sort of also tying into it this notion of myth hmm. and sort of using myth to provide hope or salvation from whatever current um, oppression or current difficulties one may be encountering either in their own lives at the personal level or at the collective one. The choice to read together the work of writers and artists on opposite sides of the Atlantic who were um, writing mm -hmm. in the 20th century, how has that methodology impacted your work on Arabic poetry? Mm -hmm. So I was interested in further exploring these dynamics with regards to Islamic Spain because there's been a lot of great work that's been done already on modes of solidarity between African-American culture and Palestine, and in particular, the ways in which the Black Panthers uh, created bonds of solidarity with Palestine starting in the 60s, and the Black Panthers were known for traveling to North Africa. Members of the group also traveled to Palestine, and so many of them interacted with one another and were well acquainted with poetry from Palestine. What I was interested in, in exploring was what about any history beyond that? Hmm. Um, could we look to see if there were any ways that there was a solidarity, whether explicit in the way that the Black Panthers did it with members of various Palestinian activist organizations, or is it something that was much more subtle, just familiarity with this culture and with these histories? That's how I sort of got started with looking at Malcolm X. And from there, that's where I discovered um, these hip hop artists, one of whom is Ras Cass, who mentions in this particular song, which you provided an excerpt to, um, a history of the world sort of reframed through the lens of an abject subject. So the portion that we listened to um, states that in eight, in eight centuries, Muslims conquered Spain, Portugal, and France and controlled it for 700 years. They never mention this in history class because Ofes are threatened when you get the real lesson. Moors from Baghdad, Turkey, threatened European Christians, meaning the white way of life, hence the Crusades for Christ. On November 25th, 1491, Santiago defeats the last Muslim stronghold, Granada, and King Ferdinand gave thanks to God for victory. So some of this is historically inaccurate. Santiago is most likely a reference to Santiago uh, Matamoros, whose last name literally translates to Moor Killer. But he didn't defeat Granada. He um, is, though, the, the patron saint of the Spanish people. Hmm. But nevertheless, 
uh, what's important about this song that I found very interesting is that in interviews about it, the artist Ras Cass states that he approached writing this song from the perspective of a historian narrating human history from an Afrocentric standpoint rather than um, from a Eurocentric one or rather than a music artist writing lyrics to a song. Hmm. And so that, that idea of um, an artist being a historian as well is what sort of got me thinking about the ways that poets as well could be historians documenting or archiving a history of their own people or their own heritages. In theorizing the work of these artists uh, as an archive, as a historical archive, in a sense, you're you're helping them, you know, assisting them in assembling this. So, what does this archive look like? So, this archive would be something that incorporates all of the senses. Um, so, it would be, for instance, epigraphic poetry that's inscribed on the walls of the Alhambra itself. It would be poems from the medieval period that talk about all of the various monuments and landmarks and cities that have been destroyed that we mm. no longer have mm -hmm. any record of. It would incorporate modern or, and contemporary Arabic poetry, Spanish poetry, um, for instance, 20th century Spanish poet Federico Garcia Lorca was very much influenced by the Islamic Spain uh, that he had heard about, that he had read about being from Granada. He was friends with many 20th century Spanish Arabists. And so I would incorporate that as well. Mm -hmm. There's um, Persian poets, Ahmed Shamlu, for instance, who writes about Al-Andalus and Persian. And I'd also include um, excerpts of Malcolm X's po um, speeches and and these hip-hop songs and rap songs because they all relate to Islamic Spain in some way. And so what I'm interested in doing is sort of creating this ephemeral archive but allowing the culture of the other, the non-European, to sort of dictate what would be part of it. And... Um, you know, allowing them to write about themselves without um, sort of distorting it in any way. And, and sometimes that's the, that's the case with Eurocentric modes of archiving. Um, and so there's, for instance, at the Alhambra now, um, there's, they don't really have any materials prior to 1492 mm. located in their libraries. And so when you ask them about where where's all the material before the Christians came, the archivists will will usually suggest for you to go on some sort of like fishing expedition in Morocco, saying that the last Muslim king and all of his peoples took everything with them when they went to Morocco. Interesting. Um, so you sort of wonder, well, why is this the case? What what actually happened to these documents? Are they hidden? Are they destroyed? What would what would it mean to to start creating one? Um, and so that's hopefully my goal with my next project, my next academic project, to sort of slowly start putting everything together, just so that way um, we can acknowledge that there's the possibility of looking at history and constructing the past in multiple ways. Ana Cruz, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. 
Listeners who are interested in learning more about this topic can check out our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where Anna has provided us with a short reading list as well as some images accompanying this topic. That's all for now, and until next time, thanks again, Anna. Understand that regardless of the lofty ideas engraved on paper and such documents as the Constitution or Declaration, the basic nature of the European-American white man remains virtually unchanged. So check. This is the nature of the threat.